0: I'm going to share a message this morning on connections. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to find Matthew chapter 1. And when you find Matthew chapter 1, you need to put uh, like an offering envelope there or if you got something in your Bible to mark it. And I want you to go over to Luke chapter 3. We're going to be going back and forth between those two places this morning. So I'm going to be jumping back and forth. So this will help you to get right to the verses we're going to be reading. Luke 3. And Matthew 1, connections. If you hear someone say, I have connections, what jumps into your mind? Yeah. It's it's like they have people in places that gives them privileges, right? Or they can shortcut the process. Um, They can bypass procedures, Just go to the top. You know, sometimes these things are are really a blessing. When we was getting our sign up at a new church in Jacksonville, they came out with this ridiculous sign ordinance. You know, city halls can do that. But we knew someone in city hall. Only problem was when the Baptist church wanted to get their sign up, they says, what did you guys do to get your sign up? Um, I'm like, Schultz, uh, I know nothing, I see nothing. But when you say connection, but it's also, that word can imply that you have authentic authority, credibility, because you have a backing of someone that gives you that authority. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, something negative. It can mean something very positive. I want to share with you uh, a couple of things here in just a moment. But let me just give you an example of when it's really good to have a connection. September of 2000, I'm sure Brother Leon and Junior and those that went to Russia remember the chaos of us flying to Russia, flying from Atlanta to New York. And we knew when we got on the plane in New York, we got on the plane five minutes before it was to take off, that our luggage was not coming with us because we got on a shuttle from the domestic terminal to the international terminal, and I looked at the guy and I said, we will give you a really good tip if you bypass all your other stops. And we started pulling out money, and he went by all those stops. We probably made a lot of people, but we're like, we got to get to our, but we knew our luggage was not with us. We landed, no one could speak English, and our contact there was not there. Not good. And, you know, it was like post-Cold War, but it felt cold there. <laughs> it still felt cold there. And then walked in Kirby Riles, our connection. And we were one happy group because he got to talking to them and everything. In fact, we went up to Hibaris about an hour north of Moscow, and about a day or so later, they came with a looked like a cattle truck with our luggage piled in like cordwood. And would you believe that every single one of our pieces of luggage was there? God is so good. But what about family connections? What about your family connections? Uh, I want to share with you a couple of photographs here. The first one, here's a trivia question. How many recognize one of the two adults in this picture? Are we up yet? All right, if you think you recognize one of the two adults, Paul, you're, you're disqualified, okay? Who thinks they recognize either one of the two adults there? Come on. Some of you that go way, way back to NFL, a commentator, a woman commentator, former Miss America, Phyllis George. Now, I would have been shocked if anyone said, yeah, I recognize the lady on the right. (laughs) This is Phyllis George, and when that picture was taken, that's her son Lincoln. Phyllis George uh, was Miss America, was on NFL broadcast. She had a lot of things she was doing. But in this picture, she was married to John Y. Brown, governor of Kentucky. And that's their little boy. The lady to her left is Sarah Blanche Lynn Brown, my grandfather's sister, my great-aunt. Now, I wanted Brenda to meet some of my family as our kids got up older, and that's one of the ladies that we went to Kentucky. She died on November the 25th, uh, 1996, at the age of 100, just one month short of turning 101. But as our kids got to vote, I said, "There's a few people in the family I want you to meet." So we would go and meet with her, and what an incredible character! She was a lifelong Democrat, and my dad says, "Do not discuss politics with Aunt Blanche. You're not going to get anywhere." So I avoided that. She was on President Carter's Council for Aging. She was all involved in politics. But we were sitting there, and she was so fond of her father, Jefferson Lynn, that she looked at Jason, and she said these words to Jason. Son, you ought to be thankful that the blood of my daddy is flowing through your veins. His eyes got this big around, and he looked down at his arms. (laughs) He's like, but I don't want him, his blood flowing through my veins. She supposedly said one time, she loved her parents so much, she supposedly said to my parents, and it troubled my dad and my mom, said, if my daddy's not in heaven, I don't want to go there. Now, that wasn't her estimation of heaven as though that was her estimation of her father. Now, the next picture, she's in this next picture, and this is her father and mother, and she's standing next to her mother, Bertha Taylor Lynn. And that is Jefferson Lynn, all the way to your right. Next to him is Owen, their oldest son. To the all the way to the left is Bernard Simon Lynn, my dad's dad. And next to him is the youngest one, Leslie Jack Lynn. Now, you can take that. I just wanted to show you, this is a very old picture because Jefferson Lynn died around 1925, something like that. So that tells you how old that picture is. But she was so fond of her family, and when I started doing genealogy work, my dad sat me down and says, "I need to give you a heads up on a couple of things." And I'm glad he did, because I wouldn't have wanted to come across a couple of things by surprise. When I was studying for the messages leading up to Christmas, and I was going through the nativity story and Matthew's account and Luke's account, and that's why I have you there. Something just really resonated with me in, like in Matthew chapter 1, if you're looking in Matthew chapter 1, the very start of Matthew's gospel is the word genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I think it says, son of David, son of Abraham. Is that right? So Matthew gives his account. It's kind of interesting I want you to compare in your mind Matthew's rendering of this story and Luke's rendering. Matthew starts his story with the family history of Jesus. Very important because he was writing primarily to Jewish readers. He was writing with Jewish people in mind. So right off the bat, he gets right to the point And genealogy was very important, tribal connections, which tribe of Israel do you belong to? This is why when Paul was talking about that he was a Jew among Jews, that he was, he had this prestigious background, and one of the things he bragged on that he was from the tribe of, anybody remember what Saul of Tarsus was tribe of? Benjamin, Benjamin carried a lot of honors, one of the most honorable tribes to be from, And even Saul of Tarsus, in his rendering about, he goes all the way back. He says, I'm from Benjamin. It was a point of honor. And so right off the bat, Matthew is tracking this. And right, start off at the very start, he says, son of David, son of Abraham. And then he goes from Abraham and he tracks down to Joseph. And we're going to jump into this genealogy in a little bit. But if you go over to Luke, Luke's genealogy starts around verse 23 of chapter 3, after the birth of Jesus, after the birth of John the Baptist. Chapter 1 is a very long chapter. It's about the conception of John the Baptist and the conception of Mary and and, uh, Mary and Elizabeth. And chapter 2 is a great story from Luke's perspective of the birth of Jesus. Now, Let me just make a couple of points here before we get too further into this. Matthew really says nothing, think about this, about Mary's conversation with an angel or any revelation of God to Mary other than this point that she had conceived by the Holy Ghost. It's all about Joseph, how Joseph was wanting to break off the relationship, to, to give her a, a divorce, a breaking of the engagement. And the angel came to him and said, don't do this. This is of God. And, and when the child is born, it's just, there's nothing about the shepherds. There's nothing about the angelic hosts appearing. There's nothing really about Mary, and it's about Joseph. Why is that? If you go over to Luke, though, it's almost all about Mary. Mary's a prominent person in Luke. And here is just the opposite in the genealogies. Look at, when you look around, is it verse 23? It starts? It starts with Joseph, does it not? And it tracks back all the way, where does it track back to? You can't get any further than Adam. You now it kind of reminded me when I was at this uh, thing about creationism versus evolutionism and the symbols of God sponsored this, and I heard people saying that Adam was kind of like a, a name for people. And I said, well, undoubtedly, Luke was really confused because he listed Adam in the genealogy of Jesus. Of course, I, I'd love a good argument. But why is Luke writing so differently from Matthew? Everybody realizes, uh, uh, researching this, that Mark was probably the first gospel written, and he says nothing about this. Not one word. He picks it up with John the Baptist preaching and Jesus preaching. Right, They're adults. Has nothing to say about their infancy, about their adolescence, nothing. Just he jumps right into the middle of the ministry, right at the start of their ministry. John's gospel is more theological. It starts off with a, a, a defense of the deity of Jesus. has nothing to say about the, the narrative for the birth, the conception. None of that. So you have these two gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, who are writing so differently. Here's where I want you to just kind of put this note in your margin in Matthew 1. Matthew is writing from Joseph's perspective. And he's writing to Jewish people who would understand the importance of that genealogy starting with Abraham, right? right? And if you go over to Luke three, you ought to write that this is written from Mary's perspective. Brother Davis said in Sunday school that the prophecy that that was given to the man and the woman and serpent, when God spoke to the serpent, it says the seed of the woman will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heels. It's kind of like an odd statement, the seed of the woman, that through a woman, God would bring a remedy to what happened in that disaster in the Garden of Eden. So why do we know that this is Mary's side of the genealogy? I want you to look in that very first verse, verse 23. It says, in Luke 3, as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Does it say that? It's talks about Jesus as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And then when you follow it on down, you find that it's in parentheses that as was supposed the son of Joseph, in the King James. Follow me here just for a moment. Go back to Matthew 1, verse 6, where it says, and this is where it gets really interesting. This might not be exciting to you right now, but hold on. It just might get exciting. Jesse, Matthew 1, 6, Jesse, the father of King David, he's working his way down from Abraham, coming down to Jesse. He's working it toward Joseph. And listen to what he says. Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now go over to Luke 3, verse 31, and this is the same area where David is mentioned as a connecting point in Luke's genealogy. The son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Wow. Matthew says Solomon, right? Luke says Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed. And if you stop right there at 32, all the names are the same above David in both genealogies. If you go back over to Matthew, all the names from Abraham down to David are the same as those in Luke 3, David and up. But once it gets to David, there's not only a different son of David that's mentioned, but all the names are changed. There's not the same name after that. So what's going on here? Now, critics of the Bible will jump on this and says, Aha! See, your Bible is wrong. It's got errors in it. It's got all this, it's it's got different names for the ancestry of Jesus. Now, what would you say to them? Well, I'm about to give you what to say to them. How's that? Have any of you noticed this before? It's why because I can tell you why because we don't like genealogies. Abraham begat Jacob, Jacob begat. We just don't like the begats. We get tired of them. But these are important. These are why this is listed. This is Mary's genealogy. This is how do we know that? I'm about to give you that. The names are different because if you go and see, I'm, I'm into genealogy. I'm I'm an active member of Ancestry.com. When they had that nice little commercial come on, I'm in. I've been in. And before they did that, I had Family Tree Maker software. And before they did that, I was reading censuses page by page before it was digitized so we can just go in. and, And Brenda thought I was crazy, but I just thought it was wonderful to research all these names and see these stories and here's Mary. How do we know this is Mary's side of the family? Because in Ancestry.com, you have two branches of a family tree, don't you? You have your father and you have your mother. And I research all of Brenda's family. I've been to all kinds of cemeteries around Laurel, Mississippi. I've walked out into a cow pasture to a, a hill where they moved a cemetery for a highway had to make sure the cows weren't really going to do anything with me and got out there to see the Waltman Cemetery outside of Laurel, Mississippi. You see, it's not just names, it's, it's history there. And what you have here is a unique history. Mary could trace her family to Nathan. Joseph could trace his family to Solomon. This is why there's two different it branches off. Says, so why didn't they just say Mary? Because in genealogies they would not list the women. But think about this: when it gets to Joseph, it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. It's almost like Luke is giving us some kind of interest here that Mary's involved in here, and, and that Matthew kind of insinuated this. Heli, who supposedly was the father of Joseph, was really the father of Mary. Because men in that day and time, when their daughters married someone, they could claim the son-in-law as though they were their own son. What do we like to say at weddings? I haven't lost a daughter. I've gained not a son-in-law, a son. Part of our family now. Heli is the father of Mary. Now, how do we know that? Let me just give you, if you want to research this, there's a great article on Jews for Jesus. Because if there's a group that's researched, the Messianic background of Jesus it's Jews for Jesus. And you go on their website and find this article about the genealogies of Matthew and Luke not matching up. And they give this extra biblical record that the Jerusalem Talmud recognize the genealogy that of miriam which is the hebrew name for mary and not joseph and refers to miriam as the daughter of heli and it's recorded in the talmud that mary's father was named heli so here it is one more item before i get to the real point of this message over in matthew's genealogy go back to chapter one there is a problem in Matthew's genealogy. And if you want to underline the name, it's going to be in Matthew 1.11, where it says, "In Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. Is that what it says? In Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, he's, Matthew's given the genealogy of Jesus, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittiel, and Shittiel the father of Zerubbabel. Those are names we can be very familiar with. But why is Jeconiah a problem? Jeconiah was a king of Judah for only three months. And I want you to put this note. If you want to turn there, you can turn there and follow me. Jeremiah 22, God prophesies over Jeconiah through the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 22, if you just want to write the reference, Jeremiah 22, verse 24, following, I'm going to read it to you. As I live, saith the Lord, though Jeconiah, and and it's like Jehoiachin is another rendering of his name, Kananiah, but it's the name Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was a signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. And I will give thee the hand of them that seek your life, and to the hand of them whose face you fear, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hands of Chaldean. This is Jeremiah telling them God was speaking through Jeremiah, saying, "You're going to be captured here, and I will cast you out and your mother that bare you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die." Thirty-six years later, Jeconiah died in Babylon, and to the land whereto you desire to return. There shall they not return. Is this man, Jeconiah, a despised broken idol? Is he a vessel within is no pleasure? Wherefore, are they cast out he and his seed and are cast into a land which they know not. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. No blood kin of Jeconiah's descendants could be qualified to sit on the throne of Israel, on David's throne. And Joseph was a blood kin of Jeconiah. This, gene- this genealogy in Matthew was kind of like the official legal genealogy that recognized Jesus as the son of Joseph, actually an adoptive son of Joseph, but spiritually, it could have never come through Joseph. There was none of Joseph in Jesus, but Mary was in Jesus. He was part of her, this incarnation of the Son of God, pre-existent, eternal, coming into her womb, becoming part of her, the God-man, and through her, he had a legitimacy to the throne of David through Nathan. Isn't that neat? So there's two genealogies. There's one's from the father's side, Joseph's, and one is from Mary's side. Now, I'm not quite finished with this because in, in Luke's it talks about the last, what is the last thing in Luke's genealogy? Son of Adam, son of God. Jesus, son of God. Also, son of Adam, which meant he was of hum- humanity, and son of God, that he was deity in one person. But there were scandals in this family just like my dad warned me you're going to come up on some information son I don't want you to be surprised by it some of those things though when I looked at it and when he told me I says I don't feel any different about our family if some of those things hadn't happened I wouldn't be here and you look over at Matthew's genealogy just for a moment and there's scandals there. You have Salmon marrying a woman with a horrible background. Right? Rahab. And then he has a son, Boaz, who marries a Moabite woman, Ruth. And both of them are mentioned. This is a rarity to mention women in the genealogy. Why is Matthew bringing the women into this genealogy and these women? Because it's almost like he's communicating to the Jewish people that Jesus, as Messiah, still has Gentiles in his ancestry. And that God is not just for the Jewish people, he's for the whole world. It was giving them this message that he didn't come to save the Jewish people, he came to save the world. And you couldn't get any more worldly than Rahab, the prostitute. I thought about that? Wonder what Salmon went through to get his parents to sign off on marrying Rahab. <laughs> if you were his parents, what would you say? Would you have a little qualm about? Well, it's good that she hid the spies, but. Uh, You don't have to marry her for crying out loud. She's not even Jewish. She's Canaanite. She's only alive because God spared her and her family. And yet there's Salmon. Now, we're not given the names of the the two spies that she hid. But can I just kind of have a little liberty this morning? Maybe one of them's name was Salmon. (laughs) And maybe he was just a little bit captivated by her. But one thing about it shows God redeems disasters. But there's probably no disaster in this genealogy that equals what you find in verse 3 of Matthew 1. You have to read Genesis 38 to really appreciate this story being included. Judah. Judah, the scandal in Judah's life Let me say this, the scandals in Judah's life. He fell for a Canaanite woman, slept with her and married her. And she gave birth to three sons, and then she died. And the oldest son, Ur, was espoused to a woman named Tamar. And he and his brother were so evil in how they treated her that God killed them. I'm not making this up. This is in Genesis 38. And I'm not going to read it for you because it's very graphic. And so Judah, concerned that the youngest son is going to get killed too, tells her that he's not of age yet to marry you because the custom was if she didn't have children, by one son the brother was supposed to produce at least one child to his credit. And so Judah promised Tamar that when the third son, the last son that he had, can you you really get the gist of this this morning? The line of Jesus was to come through Judah and he was down to one son and he wouldn't give him to marry that woman because he's afraid God would kill him. So Tamar finds out where Judah's going to shear the sheep and to visit, and she disguises herself as a prostitute, veiled her face, and enticed, not to his knowing, enticed her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. And she got pregnant with twin boys. And there they are, Perez and Zera. There they are, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There it is in bold print. The things that we shh, let's not talk about that. Let's leave all the skeletons in our family in the closet. And the family secrets that my dad told me was hidden very well by everybody. But he knew in legal documents I would find something. And this is what I want to close with. Brandon, if you can come to the instruments. God used a scandal of an incredible decadence. Judah was not a very well-mannered man. Very little you see in Judah's life is commendable. He did intervene with his brothers not to see Joseph killed when they sold him into slavery. But very little in Judah's life. Here he is. He's the prophesied one, the 12 sons of Jacob, the descendant of Abraham through which the line of David would come, and it got that close to not happening. Obviously, God doesn't endorse these things, but here's the message. God can take the disasters of your family and redeem them. God can take the mess of our families and somehow bring order into the chaos. He did here, didn't he? He wonderfully can take the worst outcomes and our bad decisions and bring them in a line to his divine plan. Obviously, God didn't orchestrate this, but as bad as things got, God could still redeem it. And here's the message that he has for you. When you look back on 2015 and even beyond, and there's some decisions that you've made or family made, and there's some of those things you just don't want to talk about, and you think that's a disaster. God probably has already brought something good out of it because he's that kind of God, isn't he? Would you stand with me? We cannot change our past. We cannot change the decisions we made. But we don't have to be captive by our past, do we?